Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Pastored by Reverend Gary Dereshinsky, New Hope Chapel is located in Arnold, Maryland. You can find us on the web at www.newhopechapel.org. Now here's Pastor Gary Dereshinsky with today's message. Um, a few weeks ago, I started a concluding series on some thoughts that I'd like to leave with you. I started by drawing our attention to the incident in which Jesus was transfigured in all of his glory on the Mount of the Transfiguration, or Mount Hermon. And I challenge us to think about Jesus as being preeminent in our lives, especially as we go forward in the pastoral search committee, that he would be preeminent. And we also talked a little bit about the priority of prayer, because the reason why the disciples and Jesus went up on that mountain in the first place was to pray. So I thought we would focus on that occasion, on the preeminence of the Lord and the priority of prayer. Then I drew our, drew our attention to Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus has that wonderful invitation, Come unto me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my burden is light. And, uh, and he said, And you will find rest for your souls. And so I suggested that we think of the three things that make up that verse, and that is that we come to him, that we learn from him, and that we find our rest in him. And so as we go forward and seek a new pastor here, I suggested that we, uh, we do that. We come to him, we learn of him, and seek what his desire and goal is, and then to experience the rest that will come, as he is the one that we aim to please, and his will is what we aim to do. Today I'd like us to turn to John chapter 13. And I'd like to talk a little bit about, briefly about, the... Um, privilege of service. And as we look for a new pastor, the opportunity you have to serve the Lord and serve one another in this quest and in this challenge that we are faced with. It's not just for that particular occasion, but it really is to exemplify our life, that we would be a people, individuals, who are in service to the Lord and service to one another. So in John chapter 13, this is the section in which Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, celebrating Passover with them. And much of his teaching message here is referred to by uh, writers as the upper room discourse, the upper room teaching, because this occurred in an upper room. But you'll notice it says in verse 13, it was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. He showed them the full extent of his love. So what is about to unfold for us is an illustration, a demonstration of the full intent of his love. In a way, what we're going to read is sort of a parable, sort of a symbol of, a, of what Jesus has done for us out of his love for us. And so we read, the evening meal was being served. The evil one had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon, to be, betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash his disciples' feet, 
drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. Jesus said, unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. Then Lord said, Peter, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. So this is a Passover. And as we've celebrated Passover all these years that I've been here, there is that moment in the Passover celebration where we are to wash our hands, symbolizing uh, our freedom, our being cleansed, and being prepared for uh, observing the meal that we are to share together. Jesus is at that point in the Passover Seder, but he does two things that are very different. First, he washes the disciples' feet, when in reality one would only wash hands. And secondly, Jesus being the master of that Seder table would have had his hands washed first, but in this instance, he takes the initiative to wash the disciples and to wash their feet. So he did two things that were different from the Passover, but remember, he's demonstrating for them the full intent of his love. I said it's sort of like a parable. I don't mean to say it is a parable. This truly happened. But it speaks parabolically to us regarding what Jesus wants us to do and to become. And what is that? He wants us to become a servant. And that's what Jesus did in demonstrating the full extent of his love. He became a ser servant unto God and a servant in our behalf. When you read these passages, very interesting, many commentators have made this parallel, but it's very similar to what Paul writes about in the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to that letter of Paul, Paul's, to the church of Philippi, referred to as the, uh, the book of Philippians. And if you look at chapter 2, Paul writes these words. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, and he took the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now notice this. When, if you look at, keep your hands in both places, but if you look at what Paul's telling us in Philippians is, that the Lord Jesus was God of very God, as the creeds say. He was the Lord. He is our Master. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And so as God, He reigned in all of glory. And then in Philippians chapter 2 it says that He took the form of a servant and therefore bowed humbly to God's 
that desires, the Father's desires to provide redemption for humanity, which has fallen. Because of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, we all come into this world as sinners. And so I share with my students, oftentimes when I deal with the book of Genesis, I try to remind them that we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It is our sin that makes us sinners. It is our being sinners that causes us to sin. And so when we are born, we are already born fallen. We haven't done anything. We are in a state and status of sinfulness because of our forefathers, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God. And as a result, all of humanity now comes into the world separated from God. And as such, we are alienated from Him. That's what is meant by a sinner. One that's no longer in fellowship in the kind of manner that God had intended. What Paul is telling us here is he took the form of a servant. And though he dwelt in all of glory, he lays aside that glory, takes on the form and the reality of humanity, and is formed and fashioned like you and I, except without sin, so that he could pour out his life as a sinless offering in our place. And then God promises that one day he would be raised up into glory and every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. In a way, that's what we see happening here in John 13. Look what it says. It says that he got up from a meal and then he took off his outer clothing. So just as he was in the very presence of God in all of his glory and took off his glorification so as to take on humanity and suffer in our place. So here now he's demonstrating what he has come to do and what he will do. And so first he takes off an outer garment, it says in John. Just as he took off his glorified body, you might say. Which we get a glimpse of at the transfiguration where he's reclothed with it at least for a moment. But then it is taken off and we see him humbled as a servant. Here in John chapter 13, it says, so he took off his outer clothing and then like taking on his humanity, he wraps himself in a towel. And then it says he poured water into a basin because what Jesus would do in taking, laying aside his glory is that he would pour out his life for us. And that's what he symbolizes here as he takes a wash basin and washes the disciples' feet, as he brings cleansing to them. And what Jesus is referring to by what he is doing is not just an out external cleansing from dirt, but he's symbolizing an internal cleansing from sin, which he would do when he would take off his glory, put on his humanity, and pour out his life so as to cleanse us from sin. That's why he says... To, Paul, to Peter, you are not all clean. Because Judas was not one who had been cleansed by what Jesus was to do. He was not a believer. And so he was one that would reject him. Now that's why Peter, when Jesus goes to wash their feet, he says, no, Lord, you will never wash my feet. You could never be a, a servant unto me. I could never be your master, is what Peter is saying. He means well, 
by what he is saying. But he always sort of gets it wrong. It's very funny here because he starts out, Jesus goes down to wash their feet. Peter tells him, no, you won't do this. They get into a conversation and what happens? Jesus ends up washing his feet, right? So he does do what he intended to do all along, even if Peter was sort of, you know, leading them astray for a a moment here. But Peter says, Lord, you would never wash my feet. And Jesus makes the point, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part in me. That is to say, unless the Lord provides cleansing for our sin, we can have no part with him and with God. We cannot find redemption. When Peter hears those words, he says, whoa, 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 then not just my feet, but my whole body. Give me a complete bath. In other words, Peter desires this cleansing. He certainly wants to be with Jesus and with God for all of eternity. And he realizes he needs to walk in faith. So he says, oh, if that's what this is all about, then you can wash all of me. Jesus then says, it's not necessary for me to wash all of you because my death will bring ultimate cleansing from the penalty of sin. But there will be ongoing sin in our lives, despite that, that we need ongoing cleansing from. And that's what the cleansing of the feet indicates. See, the cleansing of the body is what Jesus does ultimately when he dies on the cross and provides us with redemption from the penalty of sin. But though you and I who've come to believe in Jesus and come to acknowledge what he has done, though we have been spared from the penalty of sin, that doesn't mean we're spared yet from the presence of sin. I remember that from years and years ago. So because we're not spared yet from the presence of sin, we need the ongoing cleansing work of the Messiah as we see him cleansing the disciples' feet. That's not to cleanse their whole body because they've already been declared righteous before God and they're already his. But they need an ongoing cleansing. That's the cleansing of feet because we always fail and we always sin against him. Now, the contrast of what Jesus becomes, and if you put this in light of what the evil one had said in Isaiah chapter 14, he said that I will ascend into the heights. On the other hand, Jesus says, I will descend to God's creation, to the earth. And though he said, I will take on, take over God's throne and I will reign, Jesus is ready not only to descend to the earth, but to be killed and to die. And so the contrast is remarkable. Know this, that, and this is what I think is being illustrated here, that when we are resistant to becoming servants, we are most like the evil one. Because what he desired was the glory. He desired to be recognized. But it was Messiah who was desirous of giving up his glory, not being recognized, being a servant, and providing redemption from sin. And so that's why Scripture says, those who humble themselves in due time, the Lord will raise them up. And that's always the manner in which glorification comes. And that's how it comes to our Savior as well. He humbles himself, becomes a servant, suffers and dies, and then is glorified before the Lord and before all of humanity. So how? So here's the question. We cannot serve one another like Jesus serves us. We can't die for one another. Only Jesus can do that. We have no glory to give up. We're already sinners. We're in need of his grace toward us. So how do we serve one another? Because we can't exactly serve the same way Jesus has served us. And here are some thoughts that 
um, I've been thinking about, reading about. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Living Together, speaks greatly about serving one another. And these are some of his thoughts and ideas that one can glean from his book. Number one, I think, we need to learn to listen to one another. Jesus illustrates that here. Consider that when Peter says, oh, you know, if you're going, you're not going to bathe my feet, Jesus could have said, Peter, you don't know what you're talking about. Let me just get on with what we're doing here. But no, he listens to Peter, he interacts with Peter, and he speaks with Peter. It is imperative that we learn to listen to one another because we all have ideas, we all have theories, we all have suggestions, and we want to get them out. And the discipline is to sort of hold our thoughts in abeyance while we can listen to what others have to say. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer makes this point, which I think is very telling, and that is to the degree to which we fail to listen to one another is the degree to which we will fail to listen to God. If we cannot learn to hear one another and understand what others are saying, then we're not going to be in a position to listen to God when he speaks to us. And if we are of the ilk that says we need to speak our minds and get our thoughts out on the table, well, then most of our prayer time is going to be found in our talking to God rather than listening to him. Now, I can be rather talkative, but you might be surprised to learn that very often I can be very quiet, too. And when Mary Lou and I were out in California meeting with the elders of that congregation, you would have said, is that Gary in the back? See? He is so quiet. Mary Lou? And it's like, whoa, what, what happened here? And, uh, you know, and I just sat back and I just could not sort of get into all the conversation and all that was going on. And I felt weird about that, you know. But I just try to relax and just, you know, not engage as much. But oftentimes, people say to me, you know, Gary, you're not listening to what I'm saying. You're saying everything you're thinking. And so a number of years ago, when I, I was on the boat sailing with Brian, and we were talking about that, he said to me, and made me feel really great, he said to me, you know what your problem is, Gary? Or It's not really a problem, he said. He basically said, the way you're crafted is, you're a verbalizer. In other words, you need to verbalize things in order to think through things. You're not the kind of person that just comes to the table having thought through everything out. You sort of need to sound it, hear it, respond to it, come back. You know, there's like five of you you need to talk to before you can speak. And he says, so it's okay that you talk a lot because I know what's going on. And I said, oh, Brian, you know, that's why you're my only friend. You know, so, and you're the only one who would hang out with me on a boat for days and weeks, you know, on a 24-footer. But, and as I've sort of watched myself, it's really true. It's really true. And, uh, and I'll just talk because I'm processing in a way. But I'm not saying that's good or not good. It's just the way I am. But what I think we need to ultimately learn to do in the process, whether you're a verbalizer like me or not, is we need to learn to listen. James says, James 1.19, be quick to hear, slow to speak. And, uh, you know, James is such a practical book. So one way we can serve one another is by listening. I say that because during the pastoral search committee, everybody's going to have thoughts and ideas. You know, is this a good guy? Is this not a good guy? Should we go to this school and check it out or that? Should we put the, you know, everyone's going to have ideas. And I think the first thing you want to do is let's listen to what each one has to say 
so that we will benefit from all the wisdom that is really contained uh, in our church and among uh, our people. The second thing I think we need to do is not only listen, but we need to help. We need to help one another. Now, I think about that because when Jesus gave the story of the Good Samaritan, the story is about helping where there is a need. So you have the Samaritan that's, uh, or a Jewish man that's on the side of the road that has been beat up by robbers and left to die. And you have two guys come by, two religious people, a priest and a, uh, a Levite, and they see him on the street laying there, but they don't do anything to make a difference. They don't help him. And then one unlikely sort of Samaritan who would never think, or we would think would never think, of helping this Jewish man, he stops and he helps him. And he helps him to a great degree. He picks him up, he tends to his wounds, he brings him to an inn, and then he pays the innkeeper to find someone to take care of him, to provide for him, and to stay as long as he might need. And I shared once before when uh, I had been I think back in January, you know, when we celebrate Martin Luther King's birthday, um, I think I had mentioned that Martin Luther King Jr., before he was assassinated, or right during the time he was assassinated, was a, a time when he had moved to Memphis, or had gone to Memphis, in order to speak to the crowds that would gather in behalf of the sanitation workers. Evidently, some of the sanitation workers were not getting paid the same amount of money that the white sanitation workers were getting paid, and it was uh, just uh, unfair. And so Martin Luther King Jr. determined, I'm going to go and speak in behalf of the sanitation workers. Here's this Nobel Prize recipient, and here's this uh, man that is, you know, known worldwide, and he goes to Memphis in behalf of sanitation workers. And it was a terrible storm, and he wasn't going to speak because they figured the crowds wouldn't show up, the place packs out, and Martin Luther King Jr. is ushered into the auditorium to speak. And in context of his message, which would be his last, and he was assassinated the very next day after he gave this speech in behalf of the sanitation workers, he spoke about the Good Samaritan. And the phrase that he used to describe the Good Samaritan was that he raised this question, and that was, as he walked by and saw this Jewish man lying on the side of the road, the Samaritan had said, if I do not stop, what will happen to him? Martin Luther King would say, most of us would say, if I stop, what will happen to me? If I stop and help the sanitation workers, I won't have enough time to put my message together for my Sunday service. If I stop and help this individual, that means I can't make it to work on time. Or maybe uh, my car will break down. Or maybe my time is going to be taken up by aiding this individual. And Martin Luther King, the thing that moved him to go to Memphis was if I don't stop, What will happen to the sanitation workers? And so I think another way we can serve one another is by helping one another. And as the church goes through a pastoral search committee, we have to ask ourselves, if I do not get involved, what will happen to the body? What will happen with respect to finding a shepherd? 
And so we want, one way we could serve one another is by listening to one another, but also by helping one another. Here's a third way that we can serve one another, and, and, and Jesus does these things too. But a third thing that comes to my, my mind is we not only should uh, help one another, one another, but also that we would give of ourselves to one another. You know, we don't speak a lot here, I, I haven't, that's for sure, about giving, financially giving. Many a time, the elders have said, Gary, would you share a little bit about giving? Speak on giving, you know, when the monies were low. And because uh, we rarely spoke on it, very rarely, you know. And we don't take an offering here, and that's been our policy. And God has provided for our needs over these 18 years, right? But the scripture does say a lot about giving. And Paul does speak about the need to give uh, in the books of Corinthians, uh, the book of Romans, and talks about setting aside the beginning of the week what you determine to give. And he says it should be set aside so that it doesn't get spent on other needful matters, you know, and that that is earmarked for what is going to be given uh, to the Lord's work. But in, I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter 8, when Paul speaks about giving, He speaks about the churches in Macedonia that gave to him and to the believers struggling in the land of Israel. Because the Jewish believers in Israel were very poor. They were poor because as Jewish believers, they were ostracized from the greater Jewish community because of their faith. And so Paul, one of the reasons he went on his missionary journeys was to raise money for the Jewish believers in Jerusalem because they were in great need. And he says things like, if they ministered to your spiritual needs, you have a responsibility to minister to their physical needs. And so if the gospel has come to the Gentile world by way of the Jewish people, and the Jewish believers here are in need, you have an obligation to help them, is what Paul was saying. But in 2 Corinthians, he says, the Macedonians gave out of their want. That is to say, out of their own need. They gave so sacrificially, they had needs of their own, but they gave despite those needs because they realized of their debt of love to these Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And Paul says they gave generously because they first gave themselves to him. And so when we talk about giving, sometimes the reflection of our finances reflects not just our finances, but also what we give of ourselves. And so Paul's concern was not just that they had money, but also that people were involved in the process. So on the one hand, I think when I think of Jesus being a servant, what does it mean to serve? It means being willing to help, being willing to listen, being willing to give. Paul also says in Galatians chapter 6, a a fourth thing I'd like to mention is that he says that we should bear one another's burdens. In Galatians chapter 6. And that one way we can serve one another is by coming alongside of individuals when they have burdens to bear that they can't bear alone. And of course, right now we can think of Beth. You know, and some of us were involved in trying to come alongside of her as she is bearing the weight of losing her husband. And it was a very difficult loss of her husband, it was a hard death that Bill had experienced. Sometimes when I've talked about it, I, 
uh, recently, I was saying that perhaps his good physical, strong condition, you know, was a bad thing for him because his body was so strong, it took a long time for him to pass away. Now, that's not to say he didn't have, he didn't have illnesses. He did. But he was a strong guy. And I was there on Friday, on Thursday, before I had to drive up to New York to pick up Joel coming in from Africa. And so I was there around 12 o'clock or so with Martha and Bev and had a chance to pray with Bill, talk with him the final, final time. And when I was praying with him, I grabbed his hand. And he lifted his hand up as he was lying in the bed. And he grabbed, you know, like a thumb hand shake, you know, and grab each other's thumbs. And as I would pray, the squeeze on his hand was getting harder and harder and stronger. It was like, you know, he had my hand gripped, you know. I knew he was going to go pretty soon. I knew this was probably the last time I would see him alive. But he was holding my hand really hard. And I just leaned over and I was praying and whispering in his ear so that uh, he would really hear me. And as I would pray, you know, about Jesus and say different things, uh, Bill, as sort of like a person saying amen to that amen, his hand would squeeze, you know, on some of these phrases a little bit more, a little bit more, you know. And uh, then when I left, his hand was still holding me hard. And I was thinking, boy, he was a a strong guy. I told you the story when he had put me on his shoulder, stand up on his shoulders to change a light bulb or to unplug some extension cords, you know. I mean, I couldn't believe it. He was just going to grab me and put me up on his shoulders. I remember many times when we were on a sailboat and I couldn't, you know, tie something right. He would get there and he'd yank that thing and it was like, gee, where did that strength come from? He was really strong, you know. And so it was hard to see him go. And it was burdensome for Bev. And to come alongside by prayer, by one's presence, we are to bear, Paul says in Galatians, bear one another's burdens. Now, if you turn one more time to John chapter 13, as I conclude this here. He says these final words. Verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. When you consider the Philippians chapter 2, you know, after he suffers and dies, he puts on his glory at his resurrection and returns to the Lord in his ascension. But listen to this. He says, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet. Now, I don't think Jesus is teaching a new ordinance of foot washing, although there are some churches that do that because of this passage, and nothing wrong with it. But he is talking about willingness to serve one another, even in the most menial of ways, if necessary. He says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And thus he says, I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now listen to these words. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. To be blessed means to be happy. That's what the word uh, blessing comes from. To find happiness. We think you find happiness when you or I are served. We think we find happiness 
when people provide for us. And there is a sense of joy and, and happiness, but it is short-lived. But in, the case, but in this instance, Jesus is telling us how we can be happy. And the way to be happy is to serve others, is to give of ourselves to others. And that's Jesus' promise to us. If you want to find happiness, you'll find it when you love your neighbor as yourself. But you can't adequately love your neighbor as yourself unless you do what Jesus tells us is the great commandment, and we all know it, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love for God is the means by which we can become lovers of others. And to the degree to which we love others so as to serve them, we will find happiness and joy and peace. Jesus served by giving his life for us. That's what he's imaging and picturing in the washing of their feet. He pours out his life as a servant. That's why Isaiah 53, that speaks of the the death of the Savior, is referred to as the suffering servant. He came into the world as a servant of God to serve us. And how does he serve us? He serves us by being that Savior who gave his life that we could be forgiven for all our wrongdoings before God. And he serves us by uniting us to God. He then tells us, if we serve one another, we will find the kind of happiness and joy Jesus found when he served the Father in providing redemption and atonement for us. And so in a way, we image our Savior in serving others as Jesus has served us by giving his life for us. Hello, everyone. This is Pastor Gary of New Hope Chapel. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. I hope it was a blessing and encouragement to you. Our church, New Hope Chapel, is located in Arnold, Maryland, just outside of Annapolis. So if you're ever visiting in our area, please come by, say hello, and visit with us. We'd love to have you. You can find out more information about our church at newhopechapel.org on the web. So we hope to see you soon. God bless.